When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So, Whit, if you could have a redo, what would it be? You mean of a redo of what? <laughs> of like world history? Just or? world events, anything. Okay. I would say, all right, I wish the United States had never invaded Iraq. You know, I mean, that's a totally unnecessary event and a huge unforced error. And in my view, criminal error by us. Nobody involved in 9-11 attacks was there. It's easy to see the ripple effects of that mistake, I think. A loss of faith in institutions, despair among the families who sent their sons and daughters there, in many cases lost them for no really good discernible reason, the death and displacement of many Iraqis, so many Iraqis. Uh, it's not hard to see how that general malaise leads to leaders like Trump in America who are offering simple solutions for what went wrong and not making people ask about like these more complicated mistakes. Uh, what about you? Do you imagine a Sri, Sri Lanka that didn't have a civil war? I think on some days that's actually the only thing I imagine. Um, literature is particularly good at imagining and sketching out those alternative alternative timelines and histories. And you know, I'm thinking of books like Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad, which I love, Michael Shabin's The Dutch Policeman's Union, or our friend Fong Nguyen's novel Pages from the Textbook of Alternate History. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. I can think of lots of other examples as well. I mean, like, and I feel like they tend to crop these alternate histories tend to crop up around historical moments that are so terrible, right? I mean, slavery, that's the one re- redo that I think every, well, at least every good American should want to change. Uh, the Iraq War, the Holocaust. Um, these events are so terrible that they demand a sort of counter narrative. The question is, what do these narratives do? Why do, you know, imagining some different outcome, what, is, what role do they play in our lives? And fortunately today, we're joined by Ed Park, who has a brilliant new book out that reimagines the partition of Korea, among other things. And he's going to talk to us about the role of our alternative histories in our imagination and in our politics. Ed Park is the author of the novels Same Bed, Different Dreams, which came out last year, named a top 10 book of the year by Publishers Weekly and a New York Times notable book, as well as Personal Days, which was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award. His fiction, essays, and reviews have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, Harper's, The Atlantic, Bookform, and many other publications. He is a founding editor of The Believer and the former literary editor of The Village Voice and has worked in book publishing and academia. Born in Buffalo, Ed lives in Manhattan with his family. He currently teaches writing at Princeton. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. We really appreciate your joining us. So Same Bed, Different Dreams begins in a speculative future in which a writer ends up reading a manuscript by another who is an older man known as Echo. 
And that manuscript is um, an alternative history of Korea that is kind of an interesting echo. And that manuscript itself appears within your book. Um, and that manuscript is called Same Bed, Different Dreams, colon, being a true account of the Korean provisional government. And since today we're talking about alternative histories, we're going to focus first on this part of your book. So, of course, that true account is true and also not. And as one of your characters notes, Americans sometimes know almost nothing about Korea, despite U.S. involvement with important parts of Korean history. So I thought that for the benefit of our listeners, we would just start with some basic events. So... You write about and reference the Japanese occupation of Korea between 1910 and 1945, Korean resistance to that occupation in the form of the Korean provisional government. We'll come back to that. The post-World War II division of Korea into the North, administered by the Soviet Union, and the South, administered by the U.S., the North and South becoming sovereign nations in 1948, and the Korean War, which lasted from 1950 to 1953. Uh, and goes past that into there are other incidents as well. Um, did I get all of that right? And why did you decide to start with the period right before the occupation and kind of the rest of the colonial era? I felt like at a certain point, well, you know, I, I'd started writing the novel and the narrator, uh, one of the narrators uh, was Korean American, had some of my biographical background. And you know, I'm essentially a comic novelist, or at least I think of myself as one. And but th then, as I wrote, I realized I was, I was getting into something that's both very important to me and something that didn't appear at all in Personal Days. So Personal Days was kind of a dark office comedy. Um, there was basically no. There's a very small reference to ethnicity at like two points in the book, um, and part of that was because. I, I had a very clear idea what that book was going to be. It was going to be about the office. And I, I almost like streamlined it to to kind of focus on on the comic aspects. And with Same Bed, which, which took about nine years to write, um, just the fact that this was a um, kind of an Ed Park-like narrator, like that should have made it easy for me in some ways. But then I realized like people don't really know about the history of modern Korea. Like people will have heard of the Korean War, but I bet you most people don't know, most Americans don't know when that was. It's called it's called the Forgotten War. Uh, you know, it's commonly labeled that here. And and also like, why should they? Like, I feel like even, even I, as somebody who, um, you know, my parents came from Korea in the, in the late sixties, I was born in, in, uh, in Buffalo. Um, it, it's not like, it's it's hard to get that information. You could you can say the education system should be better or whatever, but it's 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 a very complicated history. So I think what I wanted to do was, um, you know, I'm actually I'm interested in lots of uh, periods of Korean history, but you know I didn't want, I didn't want to do like a Charlie Kaufman adaptation and start at the you know the beginning of all Korean history. But I, I thought like giving a clear sense of uh, Korea before uh, before it became a colony and leading up to uh, the Korean War. And then of course it, it extends beyond by a couple decades. Um, this is mainly also because I realized that it would place um, that narrator and some of the other characters uh, more firmly in, in, the, in the reader's mind in a historical sense. Like what are they, how is it that there are 
Korean people in America. Um, how is it that, uh, you know, the, the one of this narrator, Soon Sheen, was um, like, what's he doing in Buffalo? And this is something, you know, as a kid, sometimes I would think like, what am I doing? Like, why, why am I, why am I here? I, I mean, I, I, I love Buffalo in many ways, but it's, it's sort of, you look, especially in the, in the seventies and eighties, there are, you know, you kind of stand out and you think like every other generation in my family was in Korea, speaking Korean. And here I am, like, I'm speaking English and I barely, you know, I understand some Korean, but it's, it's fading. Right. And, um, uh, so I thought, I'll say one more thing, which is that a lot of the a lot of what I know about Korea that isn't through books and through pop culture, you know, comes from my parents, obviously. And my dad would, um, you know, tell me about his early life. He's old enough that he, you know, when he went first went to school, it was to these he had to learn Japanese like the school was conducted in Japanese. He's old enough that he knew the chaos uh, post-World War II leading up to the Korean War. And he's old enough to have, you know, um, been in kind of these these very uh, harrowing moments during during the Korean War. And so, you know, it, in, a, in a way, it, it's kind of like, it helped me understand the characters better and, and the, the situation and, and also my, you know, my, my parents and, and, and myself, I suppose. The uh, Korean Provisional Government, yes. uh, which we will call the KPG yeah. for the rest of this uh, interview. It's that just acronym notice for the listener. Uh, so the Korean Provisional Government began by resisting Japanese occupation, and a version of it plays a significant role in your book. Can you just talk to us about the actual KPG? Yes, sure. So uh, Japan, um, for various reasons, Japan, Japan wants Korea, and they... Uh, uh, annex it in 1905, and it becomes a full-fledged colony in 1910. Uh, 1919 is when the, the kind of the last real king of Korea dies, and there's going to be a um, kind of a mass display of mourning. But what happens instead is they uh, kind of, uh, Koreans organize all across the peninsula. Remember, it's not north and south yet, so it's all one one country and they they have a form of uh you know peaceful protest and there's a declaration of independence um and short uh that's in march of 1919 uh just a little bit after that the korean provisional government forms the headquarter is in shanghai in china so a lot of these members are in exile um, they choose as their president a man named Syngman Rhee, who is uh, already in the in the U.S. at this point, and he's mostly living in Hawaii, but he's kind of been been all over. He went after a, I mean, he's he's a he's a kind of a major one of the major historical figures in in the book. Um, he uh, so he's elected in exile, and they don't really have um, any power, right? It's it's a figurehead. Uh, quote unquote government, and they they just kind of want to publicize what's what's happening, and that Korea is its own you know its own uh, nation, its own people, and and this is this is unjust and and things like that. Um, so I first read about them, uh, I believe uh, it must have been in this modern Korean history class that I took in grad school. So this is like in the early mid nineties, and I got a lot out of that class. But somehow that idea fascinated me and maybe the word provisional fascinated me like it's just such a that adjective is so um 
it's full of possibility. And, and as a fiction writer, I just thought it would be fun to play with. And it took me, you know, 30 years to, to follow up. But my KPG does not, you know, it, it, it's based in that original reality. But what I do in the book is um, imagine it, you know, lasting beyond 1948 and also um, rounding up people who were not at all part of the KPG. So Syngman Rhee was definitely part of it and some of the other figures, but a lot of them, even the Korean ones, uh, I just I just shoehorned them in because, um, I mean, we can talk about that, but it, it, was, it was part of what, when I realized the KPG was going to be in this book, it gave me a tremendous amount of um, freedom and uh, inspiration to talk about uh, these, different, these different people who, who have fascinated me for a while. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. It's, um, it's really amazing, this kind of expansive notion of the KPG, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But first, I wanted sure. to ask you about, um, you know, you include the Korean War, and, and as you noted, um, it goes, of course, a couple of decades beyond that. And then there's also things like... Um, like a famous airliner crash, et cetera. And yeah. the Korean War, which involved American troops, is North Korea invading South Korea in 1950. And yes. um, it was supported by China and the Soviet Union. So this is like a Cold War framework, really, while the U.S. supported South Korea, including with troops. And just as like a tiny bit of additional context, right, like the, the Japanese annexation of Korea follows like the Russo-Japanese war. And then like, yes, they're basically, it's like, it's a colonial powers horse trading and being like, well, you guys can have the yeah. Philippines if we can have Korea, which I was like, is really appalling, of course. Um, and so like this follows like in the wake of that history, why was the Korean war something that you wanted to include? It's like a particular, a particular strand of the novel actually focuses on it. Yeah. It's almost like I opened a, a can of worms or a Pandora, I don't know, Pandora's box or something, because when I realized the scope, kind of, kind of to go back to your earlier question, um, you know, why, why start with the colonial period and stuff like that? When I realized that actually the book would be about history, like history was not just in the background, but I was going to foreground it, especially in this book within a book, right? That's also called Same Bed, Different Dreams. It's like, I couldn't, I could not omit the Korean War, and I couldn't do like a, uh, you know, like a half-assed, that's a, that's a swear word, maybe, a half-assed job. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's harrowing stuff. And it's, fr it's like, um, you know, it's, it's just a grueling war that, um, you know, that is technically those countries are, you know, they're not formally <laughs> at peace, right? There's still hostilities, uh, you know, threats. Uh, well, it's mostly the North threatening the South, but um, it's an unresolved war. And I think I, I just found that, I found that very haunting, uh, kind of ambient haunting <laughs> growing up. Um, I, will, I will mention that originally, uh, my mom was born in Seoul, but her family is actually from way up uh, the very northern part of Korea. It's called Shinwiju. I think I mentioned it in the book. Um, my dad's family, he kind of grew up in what is technically, uh, well, at, at one point it was North Korea, but when he was born, it was just the middle of the country um, near, a, near a town called Cholwon. But the village where he lives is now in the DMZ, where, where he was 
he was born and, and partly raised is now in the DMZ. So that idea, I think, of not being able to, like your, your hometown doesn't exist. You can't go there. You really can't go home again. It doesn't exist. And that, I think, was, um, you know, when something haunts you like that as a writer, you, you're just trying to like think of um, the reasons behind it. And I think that's in, in a very uh, personal way. I think that's, that's part of why the, the Korean war sequel, it's like I had to put the whole war in there to sort of um, you know, scratch that itch. Uh, just as a little bit more context for our listeners who might not know this. And I will say that I learned this approximately yesterday um, preparing for this interview. <laughs> Um, you refer to the fact that it's like, like there's no peace treaty, right? It's an armistice and South Korea didn't sign it. The U.S. signed it, but like South Korea did not. And and North Korea was basically, as far as you can tell, like completely like all buildings of significance were like flattened during this war. Yeah. Uh, and it's really sort of like, at least Whitney, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I think that like in my, like in my education, which was not, you know, particularly influenced by like having Korean parents at home, et cetera. Like my, I feel like my education on the Korean war was like basically nothing. Right. I, my uncle fought in it. Yeah. So I heard maybe more about it, but he, you know, he never talked about it at all really. Uh, other than to say that it was very cold. Yeah. And so, you know, the actual process of the war and a lot of the things that we learned here, I, I I'm learning really to, in pre preparation and in reading the book, to be honest. I mean, Sugi's married to someone who's a Korean scholar, which was very helpful in writing <laughs> our script uh, last night. Um, uh, so anyway, you know, but that, you know, that that to me was was is telling that even though I had a family member yeah. participating in that war, I didn't feel like I knew a lot of these I, things. I've heard stories like that um, since, you know, since the book came out, but even before when people realized I was I was touching on that, just like people saying their 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 father or uncle had fought uh, in the Korean War. Um, and also from like Korean American friends that I've known who are like, oh, my granduncle was in the second KPG. And I was like, what's the second KPG? And that was something that was formed. It's not in the book, but apparently it's if all the members of the KPG were assassinated, then the second KPG would come up. So I'm finding out <laughs> like history is not I mean, it's still with us. Right. I mean, people within living memory are um, connected to this stuff. I mean, the partition of a country is such a massive event. And, you know, if I think about it as somebody who, you know, was born here in this country and, and has had family here for a long time, it's like somebody saying to me, well, OK, you can't go to California anymore. You're that you will never go there again. Right. You know, or you will never go to Florida, although right now I don't want to go to Florida. <laughs> right. But I mean, there are reasons that I might want to go there yeah, again yeah, someday. Sure. And it would be impossible to imagine, like, it's very difficult, I think, to imagine the extent of that loss yeah. in a historical way, especially for the people who were living at that time. Uh, anyway, the, we want to ask you to read from the book, the books, the book within a book, yes. right? As, as Sugi talked about, is divided into five dreams. And we wondered if you could just read to us from the first one. Sure. So, um, so I'll start from, it starts on page 45. And, um, as Sugi mentioned, the book within the book is also called Same Bed, Different Dreams. In this case, it has a comma after bed, and then the title of my book has no comma. And that was actually a very late realization. Like for a long time, the working title had a comma my own for my own book. And then once I took it out, I felt like, uh, I felt like I'd reached a new level somehow. So here's, here's the beginning of the book within the book, Same Bed, Different Dreams. Dream one. 
1937. 1. Metamorphoses. Pil becomes Philip Jason. Yi Sung Man becomes Syngman Ri. An Jung Gun becomes Thomas An. Yi Il becomes Earl Lee. Pak Yong Man becomes Youngman Park. Yi Myung Bok becomes King Kojong. Architect Kim Hye Gyung becomes poet Yi Sang. Kim Jung Shik becomes Kim Soal. And Kim Sung Ju becomes Kim Il Sung. These are some members of the Korean provisional government. Um, okay, so unconventionally for us, I want to pause here because the sequence of names that you've included here is kind of an interesting historical puzzle. As you alluded to a little bit before, you've begun with nationalists and reformers like Singman Rui, who you mentioned, who was in the KPG and went on to become the president of South Korea. But then at the end of the first paragraph, you've named King Kojong, who was not in the KPG and who actually imprisoned Singman Rui. Um, and then Thomas An was killed before the KPG formed, which is something that you kind of address a little bit later. And then Yi Sang was a child, like maybe nine or 10 years old during the actual formation of the KPG. And then there's a sort of way that, um, yeah, the book addresses this in a, in certain ways later. But this history begins by grouping them together, which is like a really interesting move. So we'll come back to this, but I wanted to annotate this for our listeners. Ed, would you, would you go on? Of course. The KPG is established in 1919 in Shanghai, China. From its foreign headquarters, this government in exile works to free the Korean peninsula from the crushing embrace of Japan, which took over the country in 1910. The body dissolves in the late 1940s, sometime between the end of World War II, when Japan's defeat by the Allies means a briefly liberated Korea and the start of the Korean War. This is what the scholars say, anyway, that the KPG failed failed because it didn't stop the Americans and Soviets from drawing a line at the 38th parallel, staking out their new zones of power, failed because its own violent infighting paved the way for the division of Korea into North and South. Most unforgivably, it failed to prevent the Korean War in 1950, a conflict that remains unresolved to this day. Two, the real cause. But the KPG lives on, working behind the scenes, laying the groundwork, as long as the country is split in two, its people divided, the Korean provisional government will be the sole sovereign body acting on behalf of all Koreans. When the two halves finally reunite, when that day comes, whatever the public explanation, it will have come about through the unstinting efforts of the KPG. Three, to our critics. Though the KPG is originally based in Shanghai, its members are spread across the globe. Singman Rhee, in Hawaiian exile for decades, gets elected as the first president in absentia. It's said that the Korean provisional government is more a state of mind than an actual governing body, that the KPG is impotent, holding no official power, and that it has trouble reaching consensus on even the most basic matters because its officers are spread across the globe. Indeed, indeed some haven't attended a single meeting that its proclamations have hurt the Korean cause over the years, that its members have shown a damning lack of unity by their constant backstabbing, that its main accomplishment is fundraising for an impossible dream, and what is there to show for all the money? There will be things to show soon. Do not despair. Four, Q&A. Q, but wait, Thomas Ahn, mentioned above, was executed in 1910, nearly a decade before the founding of the KPG. How can he be a part of the organization? A. 
Ahn and several other men and women who died before the group's formation are considered anticipatory members of the Korean Provisional Government. Keep in mind, some of its members are secret, as the Korean Provisional Government already functions as a secret society of sorts, its secret members can be so sub rosa that the regular secret members are unaware of them. Sometimes even the secret secret members don't know their members. Incidentally, some of the secret secret members of the Korean provisional government aren't even Korean. Here's another question. What is history? Thank you. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. That question, what is history, keeps coming up through, throughout the book. It's a, like a refrain. Um, by the end of Dream 5, you're reading from Dream 1, Echo, the author, has claimed not only many prominent Korean, and, uh, Korean cultural and political figures as members of the KPG, whether they were or not, but also people like Ronald Reagan and Philip Roth and Jesus Christ and Marilyn Monroe. Um, why does this version of a so-called political organization look more like an open-ended utopian society or when in history, many of these people were compromised, failed, or in conflict with each other. I mean, what's the significant, how does that device work? It's a good question. Um, what is history is the first line of the book. And it's a question I, you know, I thread through the, through the book. And I think the book is my way of, of answering that impossible question. And by including all these figures, um, you mentioned, you know, Marilyn Monroe is, is maybe my favorite because she, you know, she happened to do a USO show there um, uh, shortly after uh, getting married to Joe DiMaggio and by all reports, like enjoyed it. And so it's like, oh, she's, she's in. Um, uh, <laughs> Philip Roth, who knew the, um, the Korean writer, Korean American writer, uh, Richard E. Kim, um, Maybe he blurbed Kim's book. They they knew each other, and um, so Roth is in. Uh, I I mean, partly it's it's. How come Dennis Rodman fun. didn't make it? I don't I don't understand. Dennis Rodman. <laughs> That'll be that's a different dream. Okay. Uh, that's an that's an even more, that's too that would that would have been uh, <laughs> that would have broken the internet. Um, uh, and I think you know in a way it's sort of you know um, like this is almost like my way of telling history like to people who don't know or might be curious but also um make you know kind of making it for myself and for example i mentioned there's a there's a whole sequence with jack london and he's going to uh he's in korea in like 1904 to report on the russo-japanese war and that's something i read like i don't know probably in the early 90s and i was like so mad at his like depiction of of you know, Koreans as being just these lazy, you know, they're just terrible. And I wrote it down, I put it in my commonplace book, and it's just been bugging me. But then I was like, that means something. I don't know that that, like, as I kind of lived my life and trying to put together a, a portrait of Korea, it's important to see how something like um, Jack London's view of Koreans or, you know, Ian Fleming in Goldfinger calls them like the, the like the most vicious race of people. Uh, just to put that all together. And in, in this way, maybe the KPG is, you know, it's it's long departed from the historical roots of that group. And it's like kind of this um, organization that's in my mind, like all the all the people I've encountered along the way. 
It reminded me, and I don't know, you can tell me whether this was a, uh, an influence or not, of, the, of Thomas Pynchon's novel, The Crying of Lot uh, 49, where he talks about this yeah. ancient, this old postal group, Thurn and Taxis. And that yeah. is, a real, is a real private postal distribution company, but it's brought into the future in a way as a conspiracy theory, in a way that sort of explains everything that's happening to the characters in the book. And there's a conspiracy element to the KPG, right? I mean, that, but it's also a way of creating an invisible organization that links together things that are true. I mean, so frequently yeah. in, 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 in Pynchon novels, you know, you say, well, that couldn't possibly have happened. And then you look it up and you're like, that is true, right? And he's, that is, he's you know, <laughs> and so uh, kind of like you're talking about the Jack London and Marilyn Monroe, like connections to this history yeah. that would be unexpected. And then you, you, the device of the KPG is, is a way to weave them into the story, I guess. I, you know, that's to- how that I thought totally about Totally true. And, and, you know, Pin- you know, I, I, I love Pynchon. And I think that book, especially, like there's something about uh, reading that, um, and having that kind of the same reaction you had, like what what's real here, what's not? Um, uh, and people have told me who've, who've read Same Bed, Different Dreams that, you know, some of them are like, I kind of have my computer browser open because I'm looking up stuff and looking and, and some of the, you know, the wildest things like are actually true. Um, I should also say there are there are things that are made up and certain certain historical figures who I have you know, meeting and being in scenes together. Um, that's just, they, they probably did not meet. And I, and I put that in there, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, I wanted it to be flexible enough to, um, to kind of use both fact and and fiction to tell the story. So I've been trying to imagine a resistance to the partition of Korea is, seems like a positive thing to me. And like, we're sort of like talking about the way that alternative histories can be used in, to imagine better outcomes uh, yeah. or the possibility of better outcomes, but also they can be used to erase things and avoid, you know, rather than address historical crimes. And to me, the entire Make America Great Again movement is in essence a political effort to enforce an alternative view of history, one in which slavery and Jim Crow did not occur or weren't that bad, where white people were never discriminated against anyone or so on. Uh, What separates positive alternative histories from pernicious ones? That's a really good question. I think, um, you know, obviously this is, you know, this is a work of fiction. And I, I, I wondered along the way, like, why, what is, what is this for? You know, I want to tell a good story. I want to kind of mobilize these figures that have been in my mind for ages and, and, uh, you know, kind of create this tapestry. Um, I think the positive uh, side of it is just, to tell people in, in hopefully an entertaining way and not like an info dump way, um, something about what, what Korea is and what, what Korea was. Uh, you know, when I started writing this book, you know, there, there was K-pop, but it wasn't like BTS level, like all this kind of new interest in, and I think this was accelerated during the pandemic, like K-dramas and, uh, and K-pop, uh, something I never would have, imagined as a as a kind of a landlocked kid in the in the 70s and 80s that anybody would care anything about Korea um anyone anyone kind of uh, outside of Korea would and i wonder if um i don't know it i think i was i was kind of conscious of that and wondering like you know maybe this is this is another story about Korea that uh is a little bit different from you know the uh 
the the airbrushed actors on um you know name your favorite k-drama or you know your your favorite k-pop combo um not to not to diminish them but it's like what are the roots of of uh their you know their prominence to me i guess the difference between an alternative history like yours or the other ones we mentioned at the beginning of the show and what like Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida is that yeah. a, a positive alternative history is, 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 is actually trying to teach people about real history, but using a way, uh, a, a, a way of, 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 of getting us out of our rut of the way that we think about a place, right? By, mm-hmm. by creating an alternative storyline. But it's not saying you can't learn this. It's saying, please learn more about this, right? And that, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> that are, are pernicious are the ones who say, you can't learn this. We're not allowing you to know this, right? That, that seems like right. a difference. I think BTS, by the way, totally follows from the conversation we were just having. They're currently on hiatus for military service. Exactly. Um, oh, my God. Um, so interesting. Like, of all the... <laughs> people you'd think they would get a break right (laughs) they know um and they're like globally popular okay we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back so you have um in a thread of the book which is called 2333 um have this character, Parker Jotter, who fought in the Korean War. Um, and after he returns home, becomes a spec fic writer. Uh, how does his character fit into the way you imagine America's role um, during the Korean War and, and in the separation of Korea into North and South? I think his kind of surprise career as a um, speculative fiction writer is maybe... Uh, you know, unconsciously on his part, because he says it has nothing to do with his his experience in, in Korea. Um, but I, I wonder if it points to a, a sort of uh, idea of um, an alternate history, an alternate future, or a kind of a kind of utopia. He's been shattered by the war and his books, which are, you know, somewhat popular for a while. Um, he's, he's trying to like... Uh, write a story that has nothing to do with any um, kind of any earthly reality. Um, Something happens, you know, later on, you know, we see that that's not quite quite the case, but um, there's something about his insistence that it's, uh, you know, it's purely a product of his imagination, like he has escaped from history um, that I think is, uh, I think is significant. Um, I would also say he's my you know, he's one of my ways in uh, into talking about Buffalo. So I imagine him as running an appliance store um, <laughs> uh, in in Buffalo, and uh, you know, it actually reminded me. Uh, I had a, you know, growing up, we had a uh, next door neighbors, and I didn't know that the father, like the, I, I barely talked to the father, but I was I was quite close to the to the, one of the kids who was around my age. Um, but I think when the father died, you know, I saw the obituary that he had, he had fought in Korea. He might've even had a purple heart. Like it's just sort of this idea of, I'm not saying Parker Jotter is that neighbor, but just trying to imagine a little bit like what it would mean to like, un, you know, go through this kind of, um, you know, intense, uh, terrible war experience. And then, come back to a place um, to a place like Buffalo and try to try to 
put a life a life together that was close to normal and you know he 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 endures a lot but um you know there, there's something about him that uh you know as as i wrote he sort of became one of the one of the main figures of the novel well he's also black and i think that you know he feels yeah. isolated within his among the soldiers that he fights with who are almost uniformly white and i would think that his race would also play in a, it does play a role in the way that he thinks about the Korean War as well. Yeah. Um, and this was something, this was kind of a, I mean, you can imagine I was, I was, I was, um, you know, just reading about the Korean War and realizing that there were um, some black um, fighter, fighter pilots. And I think one, I, you know, not to, not to like, um, you know, put forth one one solid reading, but the idea that he comes back and he's attacked, uh, he is attacked in in Buffalo, and that's connected to uh, something I remember quite vividly um, for various reasons. But but in uh, in the early in nineteen eighty, there was a, a serial killer. Um, he was called the twenty two caliber caliber killer who preyed on black uh, black men and and black uh, black boys and. Um, uh, there were also anyway. There was a character who, there was a real life person who, um, some some people who who managed to get away, and and I thought, um, maybe this is this is something that that Parker Jodder experiences. I have to say also there was, I mean this is just, um, I mean it's an aside, but I I wonder if uh, you know as I was writing it there was this. Um, you know horrible racist massacre in Buffalo. Yeah, uh, a supermarket. About that on the show. Yeah, it's called you know the it's a it's a you know a long long lived chain of of uh, supermarkets in Buffalo called Tops, and I realized in in I have these newspaper clippings about the twenty two caliber killer, and his first victim was actually at a Tops, in the parking lot of a Tops, and um, it just seemed like uh, you know one of the it you know it, it probably doesn't matter to most readers, but it it felt like a significant. Um, detail so i included it in a more positive light speaking of buffalo before we go uh do you follow your football team there i do, i do follow my football team there's a lot of the the sabers the hockey team in this book um there's one there's one mention of the bills in which they uh they lose to the chargers and so a couple weeks ago they just barely beat the chargers in real life like in you know and uh Maybe my next book will have more Bill's material, but of course I'm 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 hoping that they that they come through this this weekend, and by the time people listen to this, they'll, they'll still be in it. Well, um, I'm sitting in Kansas playoffs. City, so uh, we are well aware of your team. Right, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're hoping to come and visit next weekend if we can get past we'll the. See Dolphins. what happens. We'll see what happens. Yeah, no, it's it's football is sort of. Uh, I mean, speaking of my dad, it was I, I have this this clear memory of him teaching me all the names of the football teams, like when I was very little, and so he, you know, he he's watching every game on TV uh, as as every as everyone in Buffalo does, but you know, it's it's not a casual uh, thing with with him or with me. So, well, um, Ed, thank you so much. Uh, this has been really fun, and I think you know, I I don't know, I. I learned so much from all of these references and also appreciate the wit and humor 
um, and tenderness that knits all of them together. And, and listeners, I encourage you to go grab a copy of Same Bed, Different Dreams, no comma, uh, and Ed's other work, <laughs> available at an independent bookstore near you. Ed, thank you. Thank you both so much. This is really great, and I, I love the I love the questions. Thanks so much. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading! <laughs>